Heavenly Father, as we um, prepare to, to hear you speak to us um, through your word, God, I, I ask that you would um, you, you, you'd give us attentive hearts and minds, that you'd allow us to focus whatever distractions are happening around us. We thank you that your word never returns void, that it always accomplishes the purposes that you determine it um, as it goes out. And so we ask that. We don't want to be unchanged from an encounter with your word. God, we don't want to be, we don't want to come out of this the same. We want it to transform us, to stir us, to encourage us, to even convict us. God, above all things, what we ask though right now is that beyond the things that we'll learn, beyond the things that we'll be confronted with, beyond the things that might even change in our lives, what we need most is to leave this time more impressed with our hero and our king and our savior, Jesus Christ. And so I ask that you would make him loud. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? If I am a Christian, what am I supposed to to do? These are big questions, and there's a lot of other ones related to them, and we are starting a series through 1 John called Stuff Christians Do to try to answer some of those questions. And so wherever you are, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's Word, I just invite you to stand right now. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God speaking to us right now. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which you have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We're going to spend probably half of this sermon, if not even a little more, really doing an overview on 1 John as we begin this series. I mean, why study 1 John? Um, there's a lot of answers beyond it being God's Word and always profitable. Every part of His Word is, but particularly what about 1 John? So what I want to do is we'll, we'll look at the author of 1 John and kind of the architect or the organization of 1 John. We'll look at some of the audiences that it was written to and then, then look at the, the aim or the aims of 1 John. So the offer, I'll just do this briefly. Authors are always debated. People find within biblical uh, scholarship, people debate everything. Thing. I will just tell you what I believe the author of First John, who the author of First John is, and what I'm saying is not novel. Is what the majority of church history for thousands of years have believed. It's a guy named John. Surprising. Um, it's John who also wrote John, uh, the, the Gospel according to John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and also Revelation in the Bible. This is the disciple that Jesus loved. This is one of his, his very closest friends who had first-hand knowledge of Jesus. And that's what we see in, in, in these opening verses that, that we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, that we've touched with our hands. He's saying, I actually, like, I've hugged Jesus. I've been with Jesus. That's who's speaking to us. He's likely writing this um, in 60 or so years after Jesus uh, lived and was crucified and then resurrected. Um, And he's a pastoral figure writing to a community 
of churches. And so let's look a little bit at the architecture. This comes from what I would commend to you as a really helpful way when you're starting a, a study is go, just Google Bible Project, and it comes up with these great like seven, eight, nine-minute videos illustrated to just lay out some some, some general themes and approaches to, to a book of the Bible. Um, and what they said in, the, in this video is it reads more like a poetic sermon than a letter. There's no introduction, um, which we typically have with letters. It really flows kind of like this kind of poetic sermon, which means it's tough. It, there's some parts that are really challenging. There's this like cyclical spiral repetition where John is going to hit a theme, move away, kind of tangent, move back to a theme. Kind of throughout the letter, you'll feel like, wait, didn't I read that before? And it said again, and one of the things we see some stark contrast, a lot of like, a lot of like, um, of, of, this or this, but the reality is that we get into that because it's poetic. It's using stark contrast and hyperbole, so we're going to have to spend a lot of time nuancing things. Um, it uses the rhetorical device of amplification with this kind of spiraling. And so you might say, like, so what? Why do I need that? Here's one of the reasons I think it's helpful. The serious theme, stuff Christians do in the book theme, are tethered. As we go through this study, we're going to have to keep going back to this theme over and over and over again. The point is to get this really deep. These are things Christians do. We're going to look a little bit more at the theme or the themes here in a minute when we look at aim, but it's just, you got to keep it tethered. Just keep going back. It's like looking at a jewel with all these facets. It's not taking us in different directions. It's just saying this is stuff that Christians do. Audiences, we'll spend some more time here. Um, it's written to, we see uh, here, little children in verse 2. If you go to Second John and Third John, um, you see the elect lady and her children. You see uh, in Third John to Gaius, these are all church leaders. The, the elect lady and her children is talking about the church. It talks about um, the church is, is, is our mother and raising us up in Christ, and, and the children are the people in the church. So John was written to a collection of house churches. Um, what I want to do, though, is break this down a bit more and because it, it is a, a little bit um, anonymous. We don't, the, we, don't know all the, we don't know all the design of all these churches and all these things, but here's something that's always true in the church. There's at least four different types of people in the church at any one time, and this is going to be really helpful for us as we look at 1 John, and even now, I would encourage you to think through which of these four do you think you, you navigate yourself towards, or wh where do you find yourself um, the one group is this, Christians that know they're Christians. Christians that know they're Christians living with blessed uh, assurance. This is really, if you're going to take one of the main themes of John, we would say it's so that you might know you believe. We'll read the text here in a minute from 1 John 5. I, I was thinking about this, this benefit of assurance, like what's assurance worth? I, I saw this headline to an article. It was, um, it was an investor made $20 billion and then lost it all in two days. Imagine that kind of gut punch. Imagine what it would be like $20 billion, $20 billion and then lost it all in two days. Um, have so much and then you lose it. In, in Christ, we have infinitely more than $20 billion. But life has a funny way of calling into question what we actually have in Christ or, or the reality that Christ has us. The am I a Christian question has a way of coming in and, and stripping away our confidence. But God wants something more for us as his people. This is the way 1 John 5.13 says it. If you're going to memorize a verse, this would be a good one to memorize for this study. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I want to preach that right now. We're gonna, it's probably going to be months until we get there, but, but that you might know. These are, so, so there's this group that, that's potentially to be a Christian, actually know that you are a Christian. You know, this question like, what's assurance worth? The ability to face life in all of its peculiar and challenging and traumatic and chaotic and good and all those things with this resolved confidence that we know deep down that God has us and we have God that in that we have eternal life or a full life. Um, I was thinking about it last, uh, this experience a year ago in March when, when, when the markets, the stock market just absolutely tanked, just plummeted and 40% drops and all these things. And I remember reaching out to my financial advisor and I, and, and I was just like, I'm looking at what's going on. This global pandemic's hitting and like, what, what, what should I do? Like, it seems like there's no way things are going to get better quickly. Should I, should I shift, you know, anything? Should I try to prepare for this? And, and the response he gave me is the same response he always gives me. He says, I don't have a crystal ball, Rob. Nobody does. Nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. And then he gave me some wise counsel and some different things. And, and I was grateful for, um, but we just don't know what's going to happen. But a text like this is supposed to say, you know what's going to happen. Because you know Christ, the Son of God, who, who is eternal life. It's like, what would that look like? What would it look like to know that you're a Christ follower on your worst day? When you're acting so unchristlike, what do it look like? Like, what's assurance worth when life just goes sideways? Not because of something you did, just because there's, there's chaos in this world and brokenness, whether it's health or it's finances or it's relationships or whatever, to know that you know the Son of God and in Him have eternal life. Like, what assurance would be like? What, what's it worth when you face sickness and difficulties, when your family does, when the people that you love do? What's it, what's it worth? First John wants to take us there. So that's one group. Christians that know they're a Christian, they, they, they get the rare, maybe it's rare, but, the, but the, the common beautiful invitation for all followers of Christ to have assurance, to have assurance. Let me give you the second group. Christians that aren't sure they're Christians. Christians, genuine Christians, followers of Christ that aren't sure that they're Christians and they're struggling with assurance. In, in some ways, this is really good. We're going to get later on in this series, we're going to, one, of the, one of the sermon titles is actually Christians question if they're Christians. They do self-examination. That's something that they, they do. So let me just give you a couple of tips for now um, as we go through 1 John. Um, don't be surprised if 1 John makes you doubt. Just be prepared for it. It's very common to read 1 John and have this sort of, yes, I'm a Christian. No, I'm not a Christian. I think I'm a Christian. I hope I'm a Christian. From our series intro on our website, here's just a little, like a little, ser- like a little intro paragraph as we think about 1 John and, and its tendency on people. Truth be told, many feel like when they read 1 John, they are saved and unsaved and saved again. And that's not altogether bad. This short letter packs a powerful punch and wakes us up to some necessary self-examination to see if we are indeed Christians. 
While self-examination can sometimes be scary, the point of it is always positive. On one hand, if we self-examine and realize we in fact are not Christians, we have the opportunity to repent and believe and be saved. That is a win. On the other hand, if we self-examine and realize we are in fact Christians, we find assurance and confidence and encouragement and peace, and that is also a win. That's the hope, because the reality is I have done, uh, I've been a pastor long enough to know there's a lot of people that are genuine Christ followers that aren't sure they are, and they don't get to live with this. I know, I know I have eternal life, because I know God has me. Think of a buddy I am. Um, I recommended a book. Um, it wasn't to mess with them. Um, I just recommended a book that I had read that I really enjoyed called Signs of the Spirit by Sam Storms. The, I think the subtitle is a interpretation of Jonathan Edwards' religious affections, and it's referencing back to this book from hundreds of years ago, written by a guy named Jonathan Edwards called Religious Affections, that he wrote during the first great awakening in America, where it was like, all of a sudden, all these people are coming to faith. All these people are confessing faith in Christ, and people are questioning, is it real? Is it not real? Are they really Christians or not? And so he wrote religious affections as a, and it is complicated and technical. And so I'm grateful to Sam Storms who took it and simplified it. But basically he's saying like, here's the marks of a Christian. Here's the things that don't really prove anything. They're not, they're, they could be good things, but they're, they're not conclusive. Here's the things that are, are better marks to, to look at in terms of asking if you're a Christian or not. So anyway, my, I recommend this book and I wake up to, I can't remember if he left me a voicemail or if he, or if he texted me. He's like, he's like, Rob, I couldn't sleep last night. I am absolutely terrified. I don't think I'm a Christian. This is, he's got to be one of the godliest men I've ever met. <laughs> one of the gentlest Christ-like men. And I, I remember I'm just like, bro, keep reading the book. Like, keep reading the book. Keep going. And so one of my tips to you is like, don't be surprised if you get blindsided, but don't let that stop you. Keep leaning in. Some of us are maybe going to feel this way during 1 John. Keep going. Keep going. And I'm going to encourage you really clue into what we're going to talk about as we look at the text today after we do this overview. Um, here's the point. Here's the hope of 1 John. Here's what we want. 1 John for Christians that aren't sure they are Christians. This is what James Montgomery Boyce says. John is writing to lead those who already believe to a deeper understanding of the faith and to confidence in that which they already possess. So we have confidence in what we already possess. So 1 John might freak you out every now and then, but that's not the point of it. It's to lead us back to what we already have in Christ. Tip two would be this. Walk through this letter in community. Don't go alone. In your, in your gospel community, in your discipleship group, if you are not connected in community, send us a message, info at redeemernw.org, and we will, we will help you get connected. But go through this one so that you can say, like as we go through all of these things that Christians do, you can ask people to help you examine, help you ask questions so you don't get off in the weeds. All right, third group. Non-Christians that think they are Christians and need a reality check. This might be one of the more uh, sobering audience, audiences. It's, it's not bad. It's, it's actually a really good thing. I have a buddy who's a pastor down in Texas, and he always, he always talks about it. He says, you know, the hardest part about my job is I have to convince people that think they're Christians that they're not Christians so that they can become Christians. First John, in some ways, is doing that. It's, it's, it's approaching those that are around the faith. That It could be people that attend church, people that read their Bibles, and I'm, I'm not saying this to scare anyone. I'm, I'm inviting you into this text that there are people that are that are not Christians, but they think they, they are. 
And 1 John provides a reality check. There's a frequently used summary in a number of commentaries I looked at, and it goes back to this guy named Robert Law, and he gives these, he, what he says with 1 John is he lays out three cardinal tests for being a Christ follower, and he does a theological, a moral, and a social. Uh, theological beliefs, and specifically we'll see in 1 John, beliefs are about who Jesus is. There's the moral. These are, are obedience to God's commands. And then there's the social, which is the, the loving of one another. And we'll see that repeatedly throughout 1 John. I'll just even simplify it a little bit, how 1 John can be really helpful for us to ask this question. It's belief and behavior. And where's the congruence between those things? What we say we believe and, and how we, we, we behave. What is the congruence? And I was thinking about this with a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a gospel guy. He is a, it's, it's, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I mean, he, he gave his life for that. He's not trying to say, see, you got to recognize this series of stuff Christians do, not here's what you do to become a Christian. You, you, and we've got to be really clear on this. So anyway, Martin Luther, he had this great line. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that stays alone. So we're saved. We are made followers of Christ. We are forgiven, cleansed, adopted, uh, made co-heirs with Christ, taken from death to life by faith alone in Christ alone. But it's not a faith that stays alone. What he's saying is that, that, that faith in Jesus will produce some sort of fruit in your life. It might be hard to identify, uh, but, but, but there's going to be something you know, and some of the stuff we might say, like if we're saved by faith in Jesus, will we see that saving faith? We will see that saving faith to change us to look more like Jesus perfectly? No, not until he comes out. Quickly, for a lucky few, it's fast. For most of it, it is painfully slow. Perpetually, like we just continue to grow and grow. For most of us, no, it is a meandering walk towards glory. But as we look back on decades of our life, we see some degree of fruit. First John, um, it's a portrait of what it looks like to be and live as Christians. It's not comprehensive in that it shows us everything, but what it shows is necessary for Christians. And for those that think they are, but they're not, the good news is that the reality check can wake them up so that they can then repent and call on Christ and actually be saved. All right, let me give you the fourth category. So we had Christians that know they're Christians, Christians that don't know they're Christians, non-Christians that think they're Christians, and then we have non-Christians that know they're not Christians. But they can be through faith in Christ. And, and my hope for this series is probably as much as anything is that those that are around our community, and I just want to say I'm, I'm grateful that you would even be here to consider who Christ is. Some, sometimes people don't become Christians for, for, for all sorts of reasons that aren't real and there's all sorts of barriers that aren't real it could be confusions about what it means to be a christian this series is fraught with that because you might think what i'm saying is here's what you have to do to become a christian it is only by grace it is only by grace some of us are rejecting christ or we're stiff arming christ because we think to become a christian means i have to identify with a particular political party or a, a, a particular parenting strategy we're, we're, we're going to show how those things are not true. Some people are rejecting Christ, not because of Christ, but because they're, they're cynical because Christians act so unchristian. We're going to look at that too. And my hope for non-Christians is that what you'll do through the series is you'll see the beauty and the joy that are offered in Christ and the life-transforming reality that He brings to us. 
All right, so that's audiences. I know it's long. Let's do the aim. There's, in some ways, there's uh, many aims of John, and we'll kind of look at one summary one. First John really is helpful for all four of those groups. It, it can serve for some of us as a guide. For some of us, it can serve as some, uh, um, an audit. For some of us, it's going to serve as an inspiration for the Christian life. For, you know, if, for, hopefully for some of us, it just shows us the glory and the grace of Christ and calls us to faith in Him. And we see John four different times say something like this, I write these things. I write these things. He's telling us here's the divine um, intention of First John. In First John chapter 2, it says to it's, he says, I'm writing these things to encourage Christians to not sin and to remind them that when they do, Jesus' grace is greater than their sin. In 1 John 2.26, he says, I'm writing these things to, to warn you. There's people that are going to come and try to deceive you away from who Christ is. And then at the, at the end of 1 John, we already read, I want to say it again, 1 John 5.13, he's saying, I'm writing these things to, so that you can be affirmed that you actually believe. Now, if we're going to take all of these, they lead back really to what we have in 1 John chapter 4, which is this, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's a lovely phrase, that our joy might be full and overflowing. That's, that's why John wrote this as a pastor to these, these house churches. He's, he's saying, I want your joy. I want our joy to be full. And why is it if we take it back to these other, I write these things, why? Because when we sin, it always harms us. It's not going to bring joy. It's going to bring sorrow at some point. Why does he say, I write these things to warn you about those that are going to deceive you doctrinally? Because Bad doctrine always hurts us. When we lose a grip on reality, on who Jesus is, and that's who's going to come under attack in chapter 2, when we lose that, we lose everything. And why is assurance so important? Because we want those that know Jesus to actually know that they know Jesus and have eternal life. So as life hits us, we're not derailed. And when we take all of those things, what we do is we get off the charts joy. So where do we start? Where do we get it? All right, let's dive into the text. It's like two-thirds of the sermon was that intro, but I want you to have the, the roadmap of, of what we're doing and where we're going because I think it'll make these verses make more sense because to be honest with you, these first three verses particularly are pretty hard to understand what's going on. There's a guy named Douglas O'Donnell. He compiled a, a number of commentators' comments on these first uh, three to four verses of 1 John. And here's some of the things that different commentators have said about 1 John. It's abrupt. It's exceedingly complex. It's syntactically convoluted. It's frequently ambiguous. It's complicated interweaving of stammering, infuriatingly obscure insider language. It's a grammatical tangle. Well, what are they talking about? They're just talking about how it begins. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then this little um, uh, hyphen here that, that creates a parenthesis. And you begin asking, well, who's the witch? And who's the we? And there's all these like vague pronoun references. And it's really, you can get kind of lost already in these first few verses. Um, and these verses can be tricky, but the meaning isn't. So let me just summarize these verses and then we'll, we'll apply them. Verse 1, what it's talking about is the historical reality of the incarnation of Jesus. It's saying that Jesus came 
on earth, that God came, was born to, it's what it's referencing, it was manifest, that he came, that we touched, that we saw, that we felt. Verse 1 through 2, it's talking about the eternal reality of Jesus, that before anything was created, Jesus exists. And then it's also declaring that Jesus is eternal life. It talks about the word of life at the end of verse 1. It talks about eternal life in verse 2. It's not saying Jesus just dispenses life. It's saying that he himself is life eternal. Verse 3 That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. It's talking about proclaiming. It's talking about proclaiming the gospel and then the fellowship that flows from it, connection with other believers and fellowship with God the Father and the Son. And then verse 4 is the joy that comes as we believe the gospel. So let me give you a summary. John is starting with this, who Jesus is. He's the eternal God entering into the human story. What, you know, what Jesus is, he is eternal and he is life. Then what Jesus gives, he offers fellowship through salvation. This little phrase in verse 3, and what's interesting in John, every biblical author has kind of their favorite phrases and words to talk about salvation. For John, it's life. And then we see this fellowship word here, and it's the fruit of our salvation. John Stott says it like this. He says, the purpose of the proclamation of the gospel is, therefore, stated in terms not of salvation but of fellowship. Yet properly understood, this is the meaning of salvation in its widest embrace, including reconciliation to God in Christ, holiness in life, and incorporation in the church. Fellowship is a specifically Christian word and denotes the common participation in the grace of God. It's saying that out of the gospel comes reconciliation to God and to each other. And so what I want to do, I just want to give you briefly the gospel inspired from 1 John 1 through 4 to try to use some of the language. It might be something like this. If we were going to take these verses and retell them, the gospel, it would be something like this. Before God, this is the good news of Christ. This is what makes you a Christian, not what you do. This is what makes it. Before God created anything. God knew how he would reconcile rebellious people back to him. Before, in the beginning, before it all, before it all, life eternal was going to come into this earth. The word of life, the author of life would be born as a baby and he would live the life that we were meant to live and then die the death that we were destined to die. He would go into a tomb and three days later he would rise victorious a declaration that his sacrifice worth. And as we get further into 1 John, as we get later in chapter 1, we're going to see this word propitiation or into chapter 2 that Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sins. What it's saying is that Jesus Christ lived the way that we were meant to and didn't died the death that we deserve for our rebellion, gave his life. He substituted himself for all who would come in faith in Christ. That's why it's a proclamation. And then this belief in what Christ had done, he went to the tomb, he rose up victoriously, he ascended into heaven where he right now reigns and and, and, and intercedes for us. That's the gospel. That's what John is saying. He's saying, I saw it. I saw God show up. I saw God heal and love and teach and minister in the person of Jesus. And then I saw God die on a cross. In our place, he was there condemned in our place. And then he conquered death with the resurrection. His death could not hold him. And that's what these first verses are are referencing. I want you to get the most important call to action in a series that's going to talk about what we do is this. Here's the work. 
hear and believe. That's what John wanted for his church. He wasn't like, I'm gonna give you a laundry list of the things to make yourself right with God. He's not saying that. He's saying, I saw God. He came and he lived what we were meant to live and didn't and he died the death that we deserve. Believe, believe. And the gifts that we get from this, I mean, some of the gifts, we could go, we could go on and on, but we, you know, this text talks about eternal life and this eternal life is not just duration, it's quality. What Christ offers to us is a full life, an abundant life that one day will, will, will be met with a new creation where all the sad things are untrue, where we go further up and further in as we are transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ where there's no death or sickness, poverty or racism or hurt or relational strife. We're given fellowship. This text tells us in verse 3, fellowship. With the Father and the Son, this word fellowship means it, it has the, the sense of close partnership or affinity. It's used in the context of marriage. Some breakable bond of, of proximity with God Himself. And it says we have fellowship with one another. And you may have noticed I flipped the order because actually in verse 3 it, it says we have fellowship with one another and then we also, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. I flipped it. I don't like to do that. I usually like to follow the flow, but it's draw attention to one point. There is this vertical dimension of our fellowship, but then it, it's, it's seen in the horizontal. John will go on multiple times and talk about that we show our love for the Father and how we love one another. We show our fellowship for the Father and how we fellowship with one another. And there's this growing joy. That's verse four. Our, our, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now what's interesting is that depending on the translation you're looking at, yours might say, and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. And at least in my translation, the, the ESV, there's a, little, there's a little number next to our, and if you go down, it says your. And so we might ask, well, whose joy? Is it our joy? Is it your joy? Is it John's joy and the other apostles' joy? Is it the, the church's joy? And the answer is both. The answer is both. That when people come to know the saving reality of Christ, that it, it creates in us a, an incredible joy. I mean, think about when you, if, if you're a parent and your kids come to faith or you've been praying for your neighbor and they come to faith or you've been ministering to your friend and they come to faith. It's not just the joy they have, it's the joy that we have as, as people are, 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 are confronted with the glorious truths that Christ saves and Christ draws in, and Christ brings back, and Christ ransom, and he does all of it. And part of this joy, this word, what, it, what it's talking about, it's like the felt reality of being a follower of Christ and be reminded of what you have in Christ. I mean, here's, the, here's what's true. A, a non-Christian, every bit as much as a Christian, can tell the details of the gospel. They can recite them, they can memorize them. They can quote verses and all these things. The difference for a Christian is that the doctrine, it moves to doxology. The right belief in God, what it does, the, the right truth of God, that it erupts in praise to God, that there is a sweetness that begins to happen when you know that you were broken and you were poor and you were, you were defiled and you were wandering and you've been found and you've been cleansed and you've been reclaimed and you've been brought near and, 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 and you, you were afraid and you've been comforted and, and you were worried and you have been revived and you, you were sinful and you have been made a saint. There is a sweetness that begins to happen then. And that joy it gets fuller and fuller. And Fuller, I love the way Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says, whenever I hear the gospel preached in power, I want to become a Christian all over again. 
Why? Because the reminder of it, the, the declaration of it is a reminder of what we've been given in Christ, that we've gone from death to life. We've gone from lost to found. We've gone from orphan to adopted. We've gone from sinner to saint. We have gone from forsaken to beloved. We have gone from judgment to salvation. We have gone from condemnation to no condemnation and on and on and on. And and let me give you a caution. As with everything that we're going to cover in this series, there's all sorts of nuances that have to happen. You might be sitting there going like, well, I don't know if I'm, I don't don't know if I know that sweetness or I don't have it as much or or it's waning or I don't see it consistently in my life. Again, it's, it's, it's like how much joy? Is it always growing? Is it complete? Is it full? Again, community can really help you out here. Community can truly help you. Ask them, talk to them. But like, right, is, is there some stirring? Is there some awareness of what you've been given in Christ that it creates a sweetness in your soul? So where do we go from here? We start with the gospel. Stuff Christians do, they start with the gospel. Where do we go? Deeper into the gospel. I will do this I'll do this quickly. Um, there's two common tragic tendencies as we move past verse 4 into the rest of this letter, is that we start with the gospel, but we move on from it. Um, well, we see this in, in a doctrinal way as we get to, to chapter 2, and, and we see people that be, they come in and they begin to question who Jesus is, and they begin to distort who Jesus is, and what they're doing is they're trying to deny who Christ is, and what that does is it destroys the gospel. Another way, a very common way that we move on from the gospel is not doctrinal, but is we're just forgetful. And as we go through 1 John as we, for months, we've got to go back to verses 1 through 4. As we go through our lives, we have to go back to verses 1 through 4. We have to go back to the gospel. We experience this grace amnesia as we struggle with our sin, as we struggle to love, as we struggle to obey. We just forget grace. You know, I was thinking about this, like how long can you hold your breath? Now, I'm not encouraging you to do it now. I don't want to pass it out. But like, how long can you hold your breath? One of the things that I'll do when I'm, when I'm driving on the freeway is I'll use mile posts to like test how far I can like hold my breath. So it's like, okay, I get a mile and get two. I used to be able to hold my breath a long time. I used to swim a lot. It was pretty good to hold my breath. Um, but it doesn't matter how much training I've done, <laughs> I've been doing to try to hold my breath. I want to get to three miles. That'd be awesome. Um, probably should do it when I'm not driving. Um, but, but it's like, it doesn't matter how good you are at it. Even if you're like the world record breath holder, pretty soon you got to take a breath. Some of us are trying to make our Monday through Saturday Christianity with just a big breath on Sunday of Christ. Or like every other Sunday or, or every month or infrequently. The reality is, is we need the gospel every moment of every day of our entire lives. So we get into stuff Christians do. What we need is to start with the gospel and never stop. The very best application I can give you as we journey through John is this. Go back to the beginning over and over and over. Christians start with the gospel and never stop. Let me give you one more tragic tendency um, is that we start with the gospel, but we shrink the effects of the gospel. This is one of the other ways that we can miss what God wants to do for us in Christ. First um, John is loaded with tons of commands and do's and tests and all sorts of stuff. And these are gifts from God, but only if we keep them tethered to what Jesus has done. That's why we can't lose the gospel. We are not made Christians through what we do, but through believing in what Christ has done. 
But the problem is sometimes we leave it there and we, we, we shrink the reality of what Christ has done in the gospel, which doesn't just save us, but it actually changes us. It transforms us. It gives us a new life. In the Bible, um, there's this wonderful word behind everything that we're going to see in 1 John is this beautiful word called regeneration. That when you become a Christian, you don't just adopt a philosophy. It's not just a way of living. The Bible actually uses language like this. He takes a heart of stone and he makes it a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit in you and causes you to walk in his statutes. It's one of the reasons that Luther says we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that stays alone because faith in Christ is transformative faith. The grace to save us is transformative grace. The impact of the gospel is bigger than we often think. Christians do stuff because they can't help but do stuff, and 1 John will hopefully help us see that rightly. So let me end really, truly with this. Take 10 seconds. There's one call to action. One thing Christians must do from this text. Believe the gospel. Start with the gospel and never stop. Let's pray. Father God, would you grant whatever going on in people's consciences and hearts, and I just pray that you give exactly what they need in this moment. Thank you that the scope of salvation is, is beyond even just being forgiven and being given fellowship, but you give us transformation. You beautify us to look more like Christ. Tether us to the gospel as we go through this letter. Guard us, and, and particularly those with very sensitive consciences from, from doubting the assurance that you so want them to have. And break through the stubbornness of, of, of those that need to, to have exposed what's true in their lives, whether it's, just, whether it's just out of step with the gospel or whether they've never believed in the first place. Above all these things, we ask that you make King Jesus louder and louder and louder. We want to we start with the gospel and we want to never stop. And we need your grace and the power of the Spirit to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.